I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Love and the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and it is great to be back here with all of you. I apologize for missing last week. I have no good excuse because I am home quarantined. But to make it up to you, I have Mr. Omar Bidar coming in hot from right down the road, my new neighbor. How are you, bro? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? Good. So I think I've only seen you twice in all of March. That's right. Which is pretty weird because usually I see you like five times a week. Yep. Right? How are you panning out with this whole quarantine thing? It's a crazy time. Um, It's... You know, I, it's harder than I imagined, really, at first. You know, at first, like, okay, all we have to do, you know, there was that meme going around saying your grandfather's generation was called on to go to war. You're being called right. on to sit on the couch, so, like, stop complaining. But honestly, it's tough, you know, when you're used to a certain level of interacting with other people and socializing and going out and, and doing things. And the hardest part for me, honestly, is the DMA gym, you know? Really? Just, it's... I miss those Saturdays. What can I say? It's just, like, yeah. a, such an important part. You get everything in one sort of like the interaction with other people and a really good workout and, you know, the the sparring and all of that, it just, it meets so many things that I'm looking for that doing away with all of that has actually been more difficult than I expected. So it's, it's, a, it's been, it's been rough, but it's, I think slowly we get used to it. In a sense, I think it's such a big disruption and we have no idea how long it's going to take that there's this constant anticipation of, oh, what's going to happen next? And I think that makes us feel like we're in a constant state of crisis. And the second we settle down and realize that this might be long-term, we might start finding some normalcy in it and figuring out ways around it. Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, to, to speak to the DMA part, that is the one part where it really feels like, you know, I talked about community when you first opened. I like gave a little speech. I think you were there. Mm-hmm. And um, you really feel it in times like these because, like, you get there a little early, you, you shoot the shit, you train – you you know get the good workout you're getting like that like violence out of your system which is I think is super important you know yeah. and then afterwards you're shooting the shit with the same people and it's like this like camaraderie and this good just environment you're being social you're laughing you're telling stories and you like none of that is there and you see so many different people there too yeah. right it's not even like the office where you're seeing the same five to thirty people depending on the size of your office right yeah. you interact with those same people but when you go to the gym you interact with so many different individuals whether it's in the like in the practices where you're changing on partners or post practices where somebody's asking you questions or you're just you know hey did you hear about this or whatever it might be but admittedly i've been doing pretty good right so like i'm, I'm working remote which i love and that makes a huge yep. huge difference on me because like i just need more sleep and I'm getting it now. Um, Do I have I, to wake up as early to basically oh, yeah. factor in the drive and everything? And you like ease into the day too. You know what I mean? Like I'm drinking my coffee as I start to work and I'm checking my emails and like I'm not worried about like, all right, drink my coffee. Gotta be, I have to leave at this time to get to work at this time, to leave work at that time so that I could be on at DMA on time here, which is then going to put me until 7, 7.30, 8. And yep. then I'll get home and then it's my day. Yeah. Whereas now I'm kind of really in control of my schedule. Yeah. Um, I do really miss like the working out the way I want to. That's mm-hmm. the biggest problem. Yep. I can't lift heavy. I'm not able to train the way I want. I'm not training with my, my team. You know what I mean? Like yep. just the whole thing feels like it's just not there. And do you feel like you have to be more cautious? Like out of fear, if you injure yourself, you don't want to deal with going to the ER under the current <laughs> circumstances and everything? Or? Dude, I'm not going to the yeah. ER. I'm yeah. not going to the ER. So it's, it's yeah. actually, I'm glad you brought up the ER though, because I know in the past, you know, I've talked about um, like 
Medicare for all, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always kind of like, eh, you know, because, you know, I was sick for about three years yep. and I had no insurance. And I, you know, I mitigated it and it was hard, but that does, that I didn't want to be like, oh, well, I did it so you should be able to because everybody has different problems and each illness, like maybe you had one problem that lasted a week, but if you were in the, you were in the hospital the entire week, that might be like a $70,000 bill, yeah. right? I didn't have a $70,000 bill. I had thousands spread out over three years. So that was never my reservation against it, but mine was always like, man, you know, I feel like it ruins the system. You know, it, like it costs, it, not money from the government, but it costs money from the hospitals or, and people are just going there as their primary care provider as opposed mm-hmm. to when they really need proper, you know, like they're not going to the right medical facility for the problem that they might have. Yeah. But man, after all this, my opinion's 100% changed. 100% change. And I, and you're smiling at me like a proud dad yeah. right now. But like, I, I don't know, I don't know if the solution is just like, Hey, we'll, we'll take care of all of it. Right. Cause I think that the responsibility still has to fall on the person. Like we need to have good diets. We need to maintain healthy habits. But I do wonder if everybody was a little bit more willing to go to the hospital. Like if everybody was or not the hospital, even just the doctor, like look at like Germany, yep. they have, everybody's, everybody's got healthcare. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I'm hesitant to, hesitant to call it free because you're, you're always paying for something. Yeah, right? yeah, but they have Medicare it's, for all. But here's the thing, right? Like, the, there's it always the argument about this always comes down to cost. It's about whether we have the money for it. But there is a study from uh, the Lancet Journal in the UK that basically said the money that Americans currently pay and your employer currently pays into the private health insurance that adds up to billions of dollars, and that same money can pay for Medicare for all. It's just the technicality that it will no longer be what people individually choose to pay when they want to buy insurance, but what we, all of us pay to the government in the form of taxes, um, that ends up being an odd, I mean, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a pathology, but I think part of our culture, because of the Cold War, because of pitting ourselves against communism and feeling like socialism is an alien thing, that's the enemy, we have such a reservation about the government taking control of things. Um, so even though, I mean, Think about it logically. We spend a ton of money currently through the private health insurance industry. And there is enough money in that current system where health insurance executives can line up their pockets with millions of dollars. And if you could operate the same kind of system, but just take out the profit incentive and say all of that extra money should be going strictly to care because on a fundamental philosophical moral principle, that helping sick people should not be a for-profit industry. It should be something that we all take for granted in the same way that we take calling the fire department for granted, the same way calling 911 when somebody's breaking into your house for granted. That really does not add up to being more money. And the fact that it does not, I think, is something that really gets missed on people. We get stuck like in the, in, during the election cycle when Elizabeth Warren was running uh, still. We all got stuck on the technicality of whenever she mentioned it, people would say, well, it, our tax is going to go up. And it was really frustrating because she insisted on dancing around the answers of never saying yes, even though it's obvious that the answer is yes. But her strictly answering on the overall costs are going to go down. Now, what she's saying is a thousand percent correct. And some part of me is kind of sympathetic to the fact that she was dancing around it because we have such a bizarre aversion to the idea of paying taxes in this country, even though we should be proud of the fact that we have a democratic government and that we in effect, are giving money to programs that we ourselves vote into place. These are things that we, the population, um, you know, 
in an autocratic government, I can see how dodging taxes can be almost a moral responsibility. If there's a government that you have no voice in whatsoever and they're doing all these things that you have no input on and saying, that does not represent me. That's just something something that somebody is doing in my name. Um, obviously, no system is perfect, but what we aspire to in this country is a democratic principle that what the government does is reflective of what the population wants. There are huge gaps and reasons and special interests why that is not the case all the time in practice. But at least on principle, we should not be so averse to the idea of the government doing things with our money that are for our benefit. Right. Well, and and I do want to offer some points of clarity. Like, I think a big issue with Medicare for all, when I talk about the cost, I don't necessarily mean the cost that how we would pay for it. Of Mm -hmm. course, taxes would go up, but that would be a better use of our taxes than all the shit that we spend on, right? Like, I think, um, honestly, Trump was talking about infrastructure, and he was making really good points about why are our roads like this? Why is our infrastructure from the 40s and 50s when we should be having some of the best roads. And I think he actually said that we should have the most tremendous roads, tunnels, bridges, you know, the yeah. whole, all that shit. But he's right though. Why yeah. don't we? You know what I mean? Why, why are we hitting potholes all the time? And, and I think if you look at the infrastructure of our country in terms of like the roads we drive on and the, just like the logistical infrastructure, there's a lot of parallels to the medical one as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that the, the business processes in, and this is getting really into the weeds, but Anytime people use the word business processes, it sounds like, oh my God, fucking (laughs) turn this off, right? But um, if I had to make it more like comparable, it's like the medical industry is like the mob. The insurance agency is like the bookie and the debt collector. And then you're the mark, Mm -hmm. right? And I was, I don't want to say like a victim, but I was on the wrong side of the medical uh, situation for years. And I got to see this and I I was really dealing with it. And honestly, like it's just the way that system is built is Mm -hmm. a problem. I don't even, uh, bro, I'm not even convinced you would have to raise taxes if you just developed a better system that we already have. Like cost-wise, maybe it's not, I mean, taxes would of course go up because somebody's got to pay for it. But if you just reorganize the money that's already there, mm-hmm. it might not be that big of a chip. Yeah. You know? And some people even argue it's cheaper if you do it, if you do it properly. But, Man. you know, just on that sort of American infrastructure, it really fits in with the current crisis that we're facing and that I think that it really is a scandal that we are the biggest, most powerful, most advanced country in the world. And yet, when you look at the way we're dealing with this crisis, we are having it worse than most countries around. That really is a scandal that should outrage Americans. You know, the idea that you have money for, I don't know, 700 military bases or whatever it is around the world right now, and there's always money for war. There's never a shortage, you know, there's never a shortage of bombs that we can drop somewhere. But our fucking nurses and doctors and hospitals do not have the protective equipment they need, masks and – I mean, it's just – it really is crazy. Um, well, it's the craziest. Yep. That that problem I think has been – you know, I, we talked about this briefly. I think that's all been kind of put on, on Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're the head of state, I think that kind of comes with the territory. Yep. But there's been a lot of micro failures as well, right? So like I love my people in New York. Mm-hmm. Shout out, right? The – de Blasio probably did worse than anybody in the United States Mm -hmm. in dealing with this. And I don't want to just throw him under the bus. And I'm also not saying that because he's obviously very liberal. That's not how I mean it. He had to make a decision because he was keeping schools open and he was trying to keep that show running because, I mean, half the the kids in that city got their meals from the school. So if you shut down the school, people can't work. If people can't, you know, they have to stay home to watch the kids. If they can't work, they can't pay money. Who's like, it was down to the meals. That was a micro failure for... With, with significant consequences up and down the board, yep. right? If we go back into January, 
you know, the WHO didn't really do their job either. Mm-hmm. I just today actually, Trump announced that he's not giving them any more money. And to be honest with you, good. Yeah. A part of me is like, fuck them. They're telling us not to wear masks. They're telling us you can't get, it doesn't get spread through human to human contact. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have doctors in China who were just warning each other about it. They weren't whistleblowers. They weren't telling the government. They weren't telling the state run media. They were literally just like, hey guys, it's spread for persons. So make sure you cover your gloves, cover your, yeah, wear gloves, cover your mouth, do these things. And they arrested some guy. Yep. So I, I think that there was all of these failures that came into it. And no doubt, like we got, we had the luxury of watching all these different countries, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically Italy my people again, yep. right? We're, we're seeing what's happening here and it's like, hmm, this is going to be us. And St. Patty's Day weekend, DC was packed. New York was packed, right? The West yep. Coast had already actually kind of started chilling out. Yep. But, you know, b- brother Mark was going to go up to New York. He, was, yep. he had his buddy's bachelor party and we convinced him not to effectively. And it yep. was like, it was the right decision. because so now glad he didn't go. Yeah, oh my a, God, right? Disaster, yep. My sister left, she lives in New York. She left and she went to uh, Dallas. Her boyfriend like works down there part time. Mm-hmm. He's got got a good little. Actually, he works in healthcare now. He's got like an mm-hmm. app going. Yep. Smart guy. Anyway, so one of his clients is down there. So they have like him and his buddies. They have a they rent out a house and they work down there. So they all just kind of went down there and resumed their operation. It was a good yep. move. But I say that because my sister got out of there. So you're right in that. Like <laughs> we had we have we're probably the most capable country to be honest with you. We probably have the smartest people in terms of. Uh, experts in the field, mm-hmm. right? And at, at the least, they have the longest reach. Like the CDC is probably the world leader when it comes to these types of things. Yep. But it is crazy how we got to where we are now and how we're still kind of running into this issue. On Saturday in DC, and, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but like on Saturday in DC, the fish market was packed. So yeah. much so that Mayor Bowser literally went down there, had cops clear everybody out, put a sign on there, and they shut it down. Yep. These people are not Trump supporters, right? Like these are not that these are not guy these are not the people who are listening to Rush Limbaugh say it's a hoax. Yeah. These are people who are educated, who reckon who likely recognize the problem that we have. Yep. They're just doing their shit anyway. Yeah. There's look, there's no question about it that there are failures all over the place and it would be silly to pin this entirely on one person. Um, as you mentioned, this started, you know, China was not forthcoming about the extent of the spread. And we still honestly don't know what the actual numbers. I, I really find the fairly, relatively speaking, low numbers that they're reporting to be um, implausible. And obviously, the arrest of the doctor who was warning other doctors that this is really contagious and everything. I mean, those—that's where it started. Um, and I think that there are UN failures as well. There are all kinds of failures. But given, you know, we were not prepared. Nobody—I don't think anybody was prepared for the scale of this thing. And it's one of those things where even when you scientifically do run the numbers and feel like this is going to be a problem, when you look at the scale of what is required to deal with it, it is so big that nobody wants to be the first person to say, yeah, let's do all of that. And by now, it's obvious that this is going to be, certainly so far, the biggest world-disrupting event of our lifetimes. It's... A third of the world population is under some kind of lockdown. The disruption to the world economy is crazy. You know, you compare it to 9-11, the death toll so far, and we're still in the early stages of this, is already four times that of 9-11, and the economic damage is so much greater too. 10 million people in the country lost their jobs from this. The unemployment rate is up, you know, to 13%. Only going to go higher. Yeah, this is crazy. This is huge, right? This is a, a, a huge shock to the system. And it's perfectly understandable why everybody's reluctant to do what it takes to deal with it. Um, but I, just on a technicality, I actually, 
I know this is terribly nerdy of me, but I brought a list of things that I think are worth um, going over to sort of pinpoint where Trump's responsibility actually comes from. Sort Keep in mind, I used, I used the word business processes, so I yeah, don't think so, you can get much nerdier yeah. than that. So you're good. <laughs> yeah, of actually pulling out my phone. Here's a list I'm going to show you. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, here's, here's a list of things that I think um, are the reason why I and so many others hold Trump personally responsible for making the situation a lot worse than it could have been. So we all agree that when this thing started, everybody was wishy-washy about how big a deal it was. And I certainly don't blame anybody in January who was saying, oh, let life continue normally. But by the time we were in late February, it became very clear what we're dealing with. And that's when the calls were very strong about the need to actually do something drastic to deal with it. So as far as the timeline is concerned, on February 10th, again, still early, Trump has been warned by intelligence agencies that this is going to be a problem, and he dismissed it as alarmist. And then his proposed budget on that day had huge cuts to health spending. Seems like a bad time to be proposing these kinds of cuts. February 26th, that's very, very late. He said there are only a handful of cases. In a couple of days, it's going to be down to zero. And the CDC had just told him right before he made that statement that we're anticipating a huge rise in the numbers. February 28th, he called it a hoax when... Um, um, and said it's a Democratic Party hoax to try to undermine him in some way. March 4th, now we're into March. So at this point, there's no denying that this thing is, is unfolding the way it was. He told Sean Hannity that the World Health Organization was exaggerating the death rate and that this is a mild uh, problem. March 6th, he wanted to defy his own experts to keep sick people on a cruise. And he said this openly. <laughs> That's just a funny thing. It's not like a secret he's keeping. He's broadcasting live to people what he's actually thinking. He said, if we bring those sick people onto the US, the numbers are going to go up. And I don't want the numbers to go up. So it was purely about how it reflects on him and the numbers in the US. When he's saying this is not a big deal, he's more interested in making sure it doesn't look like a big deal than for it not to be a big deal in practice. And then here's a crazy one. March 24th. This is just two weeks ago at this point, right? The entire country is on lockdown. Everybody's freaking out. Trump says, I want all the churches to be open by Easter and I want them full by then. Like, okay, so at this point, you don't have an excuse anymore. This is not the early stages when we didn't know what was happening. This is the point in which you've already been convinced that we need drastic measures to shut everything down. And your own experts who convinced you to shut everything down are telling you there is no way this is going to be done in two weeks. And you're already saying, I want churches to be packed. And we are in a situation right now where there are like eight Republican governors refuse to... Um, call off these you know, religious services. And there are pastors right now who are saying on Easter, we're going to pack the churches and Jesus is going to protect us and all that stuff. And like that, this is really dangerous stuff. Oh, on my you know? Facebook, there's, yeah. there's people. There's already who, people saying that. Well, I mean, Facebook is really just a hotbed for high school, uh, people you knew in high school to mm -hmm. just go absolutely crazy. I do, I do want to clarify. So you, a lot of things you said are spot on. Mm -hmm. He didn't actually call it a hoax though. So Snopes went about that, and they, they said, hey, he called. there was confusion in the remarks, but he did not call it a hoax. Okay, so, I'm just curious. what was. I, I'm going to send it to yeah. you right now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, on the February 28th call. It was a campaign rally in South Carolina. That's what you were talking about? Um, I, I lined it up, but I'm not sure actually what the sources, what, what the locations were. So, so what he was saying was, this is their new hoax. Mm -hmm. As in, like, this is the next thing you're, they're going to do to try to bring me down. Mm -hmm. Right? So, look, not the scientific guts, you know, gutsy statement of this is a big problem. We need to deal with this. That should have been said, yeah. but very different than saying this isn't real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I think so much of that, so much of those issues is 
mitigate, like him saying, I want to see the churches packed in April. Hey, bro, I've been saying I want to see the gym open again in April, yeah. right? So, and then shortly after that, yeah, but, but he announced you're, you're Charles, and, and he's the president. Of this, yeah. yeah, but for sure, I think every every word that he says, there's a a major economic response. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot, not all of that, by the way. So that and that's I want to be very clear. Like I don't think well, me and you have talked about this person and how I didn't think he did a good job. Mm-hmm. Outwardly, I don't think he did good. Yep. But I also see the the reasoning for saying something like that overly optimistic. And I think there's a big difference between what he says versus what somebody like Rush Limbaugh says, who yep. does call it a hoax, who who is speaking to millions of people and pretty much convincing them that it's no, not a bigger deal than the flu. Yep. So the, it's an interesting time though, because even just in in saying this, right? We both acknowledge that he could have done much much better. I think the media and their response effectively has been worse than anybody. So over this this whole time like that we've been going through this, my mindset's really shifted. At first I was like, I think I might have actually told you, I was like, I'm not really worried about the virus. I'm really just worried about the government response. Mm-hmm. Tell, effectively like, kind of telling me what to do, right? Yep. Um, even though I think everybody should have health care, like a part of me leans heavy libertarian, right? Just yep. I think probably just because I have a problem with authority. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then after that... Um, as time went on, now I'm really, I really don't want to get this thing. I was talking to Grace's brother, who's a doctor in Germany, actually, mm-hmm. and he, he really uh, opened my eyes to, I think, a lot of why we're dealing with this issue the way we are, yeah. which is poor, right? I, although we've, do, been, we've definitely been doing better. So, like, I do want to give credit to, to the U.S. as a whole, from everywhere from, like, de Blasio to Trump to everybody. Like, we are doing a lot better than we started, mm-hmm. which is, it's kind of like pissing in the wind because yeah. <laughs> it's a three-week delay anyway. Yeah. But he was saying how, effectively, he was talking about how since we don't have healthcare and everybody over there does, they're much more willing to get ahead of it early. Mm-hmm. But I think the way the the media reported things, and both sides too, by the way. So again, not like just CNN, right? Fox, CNN, OAN, what is that one? Uh, or AON, whatever it is, American Other News Network, whatever you know. Like, I, I don't know that one. Dude, they're is, yeah. brutal, bro. They're yeah. brutal. They're like, it's like Rush Limbaugh's his team um msnbc like everybody has been effectively just pointing fingers like oh you said this in january you wrote this article and you called it a you know less than the flu and then you called it less than the flu and this whole i got you or could you believe this was just four weeks ago he said this or she said that and it's like yeah i can because we all thought differently yeah i mean i don't know about you but like my opinion on the severity of this has drastically changed Each week, yeah, certainly, uh, myself included, right? Like when this stuff was first breaking in China, I had could not have imagined that we would be at a point where restaurants are closing down and you can't go to the gym anymore and all that. Like that seems, you know, at the beginning it did not seem plausible at all. Just, but it matters how deep into this does people people's denial continue. You know, if Trump had come out in February twentieth and said this is a really big deal, we're freaking out, we got to do something. Fox News would not have reacted the way they did. My problem with Fox News is that they followed the president's lead because they feel like their job is to provide PR for Trump. That, to me, was is what's frustrating about somebody like Sean Hannity spending the last week of February and the first week of March saying this is nothing and stop freaking out and this is you know the flu is worse and all that. And then literally the week after, once Trump decides to clamp down on things and say this is serious, let's deal with it, 
for him to say our show has taken this seriously from the beginning. It's like go fuck yourself. Oh yeah, you know, you're just yeah. it just the, the lack of sincerity there I find frustrating. Well, hypocrisy. Yeah, totally. Flat out hypocrisy. The other woman on that network too. She, I I don't know her name. I feel kind of bad just saying the woman, but you know what I'm talking about. She was attractive. She literally got she lost her job. She was that bad about it. I, I did not see that actually. She got lost her job at Fox because pretty yeah. much she was just like going hard in the pain about it not being true and. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Spreading disinformation. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. But I think that it's it, so. Like I, I have one. I'm completely with you on that. Mm-hmm. But then I think it's just as bad on the other side too. Yeah. So, so there's you know. right. Look, there are gotcha games on the other side, right? There is an attempt, but I think that those end up getting conflated into real attempts at accountability, and I would not want those accounts of accountability to get lost in the shuffle. So just literally two days ago, right, we've talked a little bit about those press conferences that Trump has been holding and sort of like all of it is just really combative back and forth between the journalists and Trump. And it's kind of entertaining on some level. You know, you're watching this like WWE type stuff a little bit. It's just like who doesn't enjoy conflict? You know, everybody enjoys a little bit of that. But you, I, I don't, I would not want to paint all of these things in the, with the same brush because just two days ago there was an example of a woman reporter saying to Trump, you know, um, the inspector general of the Health and Human Services Department surveyed 300 hospitals and they say they're still short on tests and they can't get them. And Trump goes, that's not true. And she goes, no, it's true. And he goes, what's the name of the inspector general? You know, what's what he goes, what's his name? And she's like, I have no idea what his name is. And then another reporter butts in from ABC and he goes, it's actually a woman. Her name is... Um, what is it? is it? I think the report, his name was John something, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Talking, yeah. And he butted in about the woman's actual name, uh, Krista Grimm or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Christy, Chris, Christy, something like that. Um, and he goes, that's her name. And then Trump then interrupts once more. Like at this point, it's like she definitely surveyed the hospitals and this is definitely what they're saying. And Trump goes, oh, when was she appointed? And at this point, he's referencing the fact that if she was appointed on the Obama administration, then you can't trust what she's actually saying. And the reporter points out accurately that it was the Trump administration, January of this year, that she got appointed to this particular position. And then some other reporter butts in and goes, but she was active under the Obama administration in some other capacity. Apparently, she's been in government since 1999. And all Trump does is say, oh, see, fake news. She was, you know, under Obama, blah, 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 just and goes off on the reporter about how he's a third-rate reporter and he's useless and he's never going to make it. Suddenly we have a fight about whether this is a qualified reporter and you have the president berating him when the initial question about you're saying there are tests your own inspector general surveyed the hospitals and they're saying there are no tests and they're really frustrated and that gets lost in the shovel and to me those moments of accountability the fact that trump is masterful at making it about a fight that we can argue back and forth about is it legitimate is it not it, you know she was active under Obama. Does that count? Should it have been mentioned? Was, you know, like who was trying to hide what? But the original point that this was all about ends up getting lost in the shuffle and nobody's talking about it anymore. And to me, that's the scandal is that we are a month into this crisis after everybody has taken it seriously and hospitals are still reporting shortages of, of equipment and testing and protective gear. Like that should be the only topic discussed, period, as far as I'm concerned when it comes to this crisis. And that, I think, is the... Like and you have to understand your take on this. That's very different than a lot of what I see because that's like I don't I don't disagree with you at all, mm-hmm. right? Like these are hard questions that you have to answer. Um, but for context, so and I've been watching these because one I've been finding them pretty pretty entertaining. They are, for, yeah. But also Fauci and I I feel bad. I I always remember I forget the blonde woman's name. I I'm I'm the worst with names. So I'm not good with names. <laughs> I'm never gonna um, be able to but she's very she's fun. very very good. Yeah. 
uh, she was talking about how like she couldn't go see her grandson because mm-hmm. he was sick or granddaughter. The two of them are excellent. I mean, they're really good. At, they're, they're, I mean, you have to think they're probably the smartest people in their field at what they do. Like my dad made a joke. He was like, imagine trying to take notes in that meeting, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't comprehend it. Yep. Um, but a lot of what I see, man, I'm telling you, it's, it's not, they're not really like, it's, it's worse than NFL media, which mm-hmm. is notorious by the way, for being like, they ask questions that would, you would want to smack somebody in the face yeah. for, but they know that they can't do it. So they just hold the mic to your face and you know, yeah. they, they keep it there. Yeah. Um, I think her name is Yamichi is her last name. Mm-hmm. Her and Costa are the two that just are clearly just disrupting. Yeah. They don't really they have a big Twitter following obviously because they, you know, they could bring yeah, yeah. it as it's, it's a brand I think right now for right. reporters to sort of like the tougher you're on Trump the more exactly. you're riling people in your favor and like it's it's a social But not media being tough yeah. on them for the right reasons. Yeah. Like for example, it was um Costa was I think this guy was in the Navy. He was talking about the antibody tests. Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, you know, we're, we're developing millions, we'll have 10 million by the end of the week and we'll start getting those out. And Costa cuts him off and he says, there's 300 million people here. Who are you going to decide who gets a test or not? Who are you going to decide who lives or who dies? And it's like the guy was just like, well, we're, we're making more. Yeah. We have 10 million already and we're making more. Yep. And it was just like, why go through with all that effort? Like, do you think like he's going to be, he's going to be like, you're right. There's only going to be 10 million of us left after this. And it's luck of the draw. Yeah. All right. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, no, of course. I mean, of course they're making more. So yeah. I, I think there's a responsibility on everybody's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Right. So from the mayors, like de Blasio fr- to the governors, like, um, God, Grace, just I'm. You can leave this in. I'm not doing well with names today, but there's many governors who are still allowing uh, their their states to just remain open. Yeah, public um, gatherings and beaches and all that stuff. Yeah. Desantis, Desantis. Yeah. That's what in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, another Italian, but that's yeah. okay. And 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 all the way up to Trump and the administration. I think the media as well. Now, I happen to see it as I think the the flame. Originally, it's like you fan the flames of the media. Mm-hmm. Now, I think they're just the ones throwing gasoline on everything. Everybody's yeah. just kind of standing around scratching their head. Yeah. Um, and. That's been the problem from the. I mean, this is a long-standing problem with with U.S. media is that its ratings. It's been getting worse every yeah. decade. We've yeah. just been getting crazier and crazier. Like I thought Obama was really uh, unfairly treated. Mm-hmm. I thought Bush less so, but still unfairly. Clinton less so, but still unfairly. And it's I, who. What happens after this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, do we get a point where it's like, hey, you could throw things, but they have to be like less than seven grams. Yeah. So you could throw whatever you want, yeah. but it's got to be less sharp. Than, nothing sharp, but <laughs> you can throw them. You know, try yeah. not to hit the face, but you know, the neck. Yeah. That's fair game. Like, yeah. where do we draw? the line in that regard yep. um, because when I do try to get this information I'm, I'm reading up the clips I see and part of that social media right sensationalized but everything I see is so much different than what I watch when I get it long form yeah um, and it also seems like there's not as much tension ironically enough even though I'm kind of going in on the media the most right now mm-hmm. there's like a lot of like soft moments and warm moments between Trump and the media where everybody kind of laughs. Like he's like kind of, you know, he's a funny guy, just objectively yeah. he's funny, you know? Yeah. And there's like, he's, these... he's very charming. There's a reason he made it right. where he has. Yep. There's moments where you're like, huh, like maybe, maybe people could work together. And then somebody comes in like a wrecking ball, you know what I mean? And, yep. and then he responds even worse. You know, it's not like he's like, Oh, could you believe this is like, yeah. he's even worse, you know? So yep. there's, there's this snowball effect, I think of, mm-hmm. of the way things are going. Yep. Um, and this is this is like the hard politics of it, right? Like, I should say the soft politics. The hard politics is the way Congress is dealing with like the bills that they're passing, how yeah. they're sliding things in, and they're giving bailouts to some people. And meanwhile, I'm a small business, so I still haven't heard back yet from my loans. Like, yeah. but the soft politics is just as bad, you know. And and I think it's really unfortunate at this point because, like every point you said, I for the most part agreed with. You know, it's like you're right, yeah. and I, I and I think a lot of people would agree with with both of what we're saying. Just that. 
you can't have things go this way for so long. Yeah. And at a certain point, not to sound like Charlie Kumbaya, but we got to kind of be like, chill out. Don't worry about what you said in January. Yeah. Don't worry about what you said in yeah. February. What are we doing in May? Because I can tell you, man, we're going to be in the same position in May. Absolutely. And let me take it a step further. I think that if we continue on this confrontational and hyper-partisan path, I genuinely worry, at the risk of sounding alarmist, I genuinely worry about the survival of this country moving forward as a genuinely united country. It's an experiment that a country this big is a united country. It's a bunch of states coming together to form one nation. When you look at the cultural divide between San Francisco and Oklahoma, those are not the same country. They really are not. Those are fundamentally different people and beliefs and values. And the fact that we have a media that is so heavily invested in ratings and the easiest path to that is conflict, um, I really think that we're pushing ourselves in a direction that is extremely dangerous. And like so many things, you know, people don't appreciate the warning signs until it's too late. It's the same with this virus. It's the same with the calamity of climate change that's coming, which I think is going to be so much worse. And it's like the same thing over and over again, where there are red flags, something terrible is coming down the path, but in the meantime, how can I make a buck? And as long as that's everybody's focus, we're not going to realize how bad situation is until, until it's too late. And I really think it's hard to not see Congress's inability to work together on anything. You know, you can't get any bills passed. <laughs> how is that not a red flag that, you know, times of crisis and whatever, we're just, we're, yeah, we're at a point where if you're a Republican, you can't work with Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, you cannot work with Republicans. That's how polarized the society is. Um, again, I have my bias of being um, more liberal and progressive. So I lay a bigger portion of the blame as far as the narrative and, dis and the disinformation on right-wing media. Um, but there's certainly no denying the fact that when I hear people on MSNBC or CNN who are making the points that I think are worth making, but they also make them in a snide and condescending way. I'm like, this is not really helping. You know, like, I agree with your point of view. I think Trump is absolutely terrible. I think this is a very important jab to take at him to say this is not how a president should act. But you do it in such a way that is really alienating to anybody who likes Trump that I just don't get the point of, you know, it, it doesn't strike me as sincere concern about the future of the country because of Trump's dangerous behavior, but strikes me more as a personal vendetta. Yeah. Yeah. This is my moment. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, I've, I've kind of, I don't think I've ever actually said this on the podcast itself, but I'm, I'm like a, a registered independent. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, there's a lot of Things. things I lean, you know, yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. Right. You're right. You are. Yep. Um, I lean liberal in some areas, very liberal. I'm, I'm very conservative in others. Usually with the first two, uh, Bill of Rights, the first two amendments. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty, I'm pretty hardcore on those. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel like now it's like it's so hard to really. If you had picked your side a couple years ago, you just kind of dug in. You mm. really dug in. But for me, I've I've always kind of been in the middle. And now I'm like, I'm looking at this and I'm just like, geez, like how does this get better? Yeah. Like I don't know if it does. Um, I I forgot to clarify one point though. Uh, Wyoming was is a good example. So, there's been a lot of confusion on why some states haven't completely shut their uh shut like gone with traditional lockdowns mm -hmm. there's a like a statistical algorithm with like your population per square mile mm -hmm. where effectively they're already under lockdown yeah like 
as long as you ban large group gatherings, like churches, right, those yep. events, effectively it's already a lockdown statistically, like 24-7, even in times where everybody's out partying. There's so few people per square mile yep. that it's already a lockdown. So I think that's one one piece that some folks don't understand. It's mm-hmm. less That's less of a like Republican-Democrat issue and more of a geographical difference of you know, a lot of the Northeast, where we're from, yeah. Excuse me, where I'm from. You're from Memphis, right? Yeah. All right. So, so even just from is a loose word, but right? Well, well, never. You're right. You've been yeah. all over. But the both coasts are mm-hmm. super. Uh, they're dense, they're, yeah. they're very dense. Yeah. So when you then look at the middle, you know, middle America, you're like, look at these. They're, you know, they're they're not taking it seriously. It's oh, it's just a Republican governor not believing it. It's a little bit more complicated than that because mm-hmm. it doesn't look like D.C. It doesn't look like Arlington yeah. or, or New York. It looks like something you would see in a horror movie in terms of just like, oh, there's yeah. nobody here. The nearest hospital is 114 miles away, yeah. you know? Um, but the other piece, I guess, and I think I've asked you this before, like how do you see things getting better? Is it just like we have to just kind of all – is it as simple as like everybody's got to just play nice? Or is it more like, hey, guys, cut the shit. This is how we're doing things from now on. We have a you know a third political party. We got you know you you can't. I don't even I wouldn't even know the rules to make. But like, how do you avoid this from getting worse? Because for as long as I've been alive, it's only gotten worse and worse. Yep. So it's hard for me to imagine um, what the spe- what a specific plan would be to try to make this better. It seems like the interests that are um, heavily invested in the current status quo. It's Really, there's the parallels with climate change is incredible. I'm sorry I keep going back to that. No, no, I want to talk example. about this. So, so yeah. But yeah, it's in the same way that you're going to need some overarching movement against fossil fuels, as one example, is that that interest is so heavily invested in maintaining the status quo that they're spending a shit ton of money on lobbyists and lobbying members of Congress. Same with the health insurance industry that spends millions and millions of dollars on legislators to make sure that they keep voting in favor of the existing system. Once you have a system that is that deeply entrenched in maintaining the status quo, it's very difficult to imagine what a corrective path would look like. And with something like the media landscape, um, you know, radio talk show hosts making, again, shit tons of money, like that's a brand. If, if the ticket to getting high ratings and becoming rich and famous is spewing hyperpartisan hatred, for people on the other side of the aisle, it is very difficult to imagine what scenario would be that could lead us throughout a different path. There is, you know, we talked about the intellectual dark web. In theory, that could have been the sort of direction we could have gone in of sort of a new wave of thinkers who don't fall into the traditional category of right wing or left wing, but they're sort of like coming at it from a different angle, independent thinkers, bringing original thoughts. I think Joe Rogan fits into that category. But unfortunately, oddly enough, I feel like that grouping of sort of the intellectual dark web ended up developing their own pathology that ended up just being a third strand of of the same kind of problem. Like counterculture kind of. Yeah. That at this point, there's so much about shitting on political correctness and identity politics that this is all they do anymore. And I don't think that they're necessarily contributing the kind of sort of like positive and corrective... um, input into our discourse that that they could have or should have been so i don't know yeah it's um over it's like an overwhelming problem right yeah yeah for sure but i'm glad you brought up climate change so i read a couple cool studies that like effectively things our emissions and everything have gotten so much better since we've all been quarantined (laughs) you know and it makes you wonder too it's like all right well let's take some notes here because this is like 
you want like you know one thing that we always get uh, or that that a lot of people push back on climate change is for is that they they never have the short-term data right mm -hmm. it's really hard to predict long-term data when it comes to the climate because there are so many changes and fluctuations and there's a lot of things that are hard to explain when you think of the true long-term meaning yeah. millions of years which i can't comprehend yeah so for somebody like me it's like hey show me something short-term and it's like well there was a freeze and then there was a lot of melting, but now it's actually a little bit colder or there was floods in, there was a drought in California mm -hmm. and they were like, Oh, this is the worst ever. This is due to climate change. And then it rained real hard for one season and they had not only all of it come back, but it was a surplus. Yeah. So now I'm obviously believing climate change. We mm -hmm. talked about this, but to me a couple of years ago, I would have been like, well, there you go. That's something, you know, but the reality was in that example, that wasn't, it, the drought wasn't due to climate change and the, I guess, Recovery from the uh, recovery drought. from the drought. I wasn't, you know, you know what I was yeah. struggling with. Yeah. That wasn't due to climate change either. Mm -hmm. But now we have real tangible data of, hey, when factories shut down, when planes fly less, I was going to say stop flying, yeah. which they should have, but when they fly less, when cruise ships are docked, when people are commuting less, but really it's it's that factory infrastructure, mm -hmm. we see a significant change. Yep. Can't argue with that data. Like I'm looking at this, I'm like, yep, there you go. If yep. you were, I think, if you were a climate change denier. Now you got to kind of be like, ooh, maybe I'm not. Because yeah. we see a dramatic action. Everybody stays at home. Production effectively ceases. And we've seen a dramatically positive, in this regard, reaction. The I guess it just it comes down to like emissions and CO2 has significantly decreased. Yep. Cool. So now we know a way forward, right? Um, I don't believe it should be placed on the consumer. Mm -hmm. Meaning just with how much oil there is and how efficient it is to power vehicles. Yeah. I think gasoline is probably good for daily transportation. Yeah. But mass transit, factories, um, like buildings, you know, buildings are still, they're still heated by oil. That drives me crazy. Yep. You know, like there's so many things I think from an infrastructure point mm -hmm. that would make that better that, you know, I think Trump today, he said, I'm not worried about the carbon footprint. I want real infrastructure. Well, yeah. I think now would be a good time to factor in things that aren't ultra green, but that have super green benefits. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's a really... I think this is such an interesting time from that regard too, because when all this starts to clear up, you're going to see that data be proven again yeah. when emissions go up and see it. You know, it's like, yeah. hey guys, like now we can kind of see this. Like, we we actually, I was surprised at how much of an impact it, we can make if we wanted to stop it. Yeah. And now I think it's time, like, all right, what are our real things? What can we really do? Me not driving a V8 Camaro or a Corvette or whatever I'm going to get next, that's not really affecting the environment, right? Mm -hmm. But if we have all these planes in the sky or all these cruise ships or no regulations on emissions for factories or farms or all these places that have heavy, heavy pollution, that's going to make a big difference, yeah. right? So how do we fix that, those bigger problems? Yeah. So I think that it's spot on to say that this should never come down to the individual consumer. And so much around green culture, which I find very frustrating, is about placing the responsibility on individuals, like separate your recycling and garbage and whatever. I'm like, that's all fine, right? Like, there's no reason not to do it. Do it. It helps a little bit. But this really is about big picture. This is this is where you need the government to step in. This is the kind of thing where everybody acting in their, in their own individual economic short-term interest, nobody's going to do anything about it. Um, it requires really, I mean, that's, I think, a fundamental problem of, of human beings is that we're always tempted by short-term gain at the expense of our long-term well-being that's the reason why losing weight can be tough for people that's the reason you know just like look at it across so many different things and when it comes to economics that's more obvious than in most cases where um if you want to do what is for the long-term health of our planet 
you're not maximizing the amount of money you can make in the meantime um, for all these different companies. And that's where the government has to step in as a regulating entity because the free market cannot take care of the, it um, on its own and say, we're going to create and invest in changing the way we consume energy on this planet. That's the part where I think that, you know, it becomes really important. As, as far as people sort of looking at the data now uh, with the shutdown and everything, I don't, I suspect that there aren't many people who are climate change deniers who are really big into data, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's so good I point. suspect that's that that point. change will be relatively minor if, if they're yeah. paying attention, they should have figured it out by now. And obviously like all of these things have the potential of being wrong, you know, predictions and whatever, but it is the best prediction based on the existing, sci existing scientific consensus. And that's all you can go by. The one thing I just wanted to mention that I think also gets completely drowned out in discussions of this lockdown, it's the death toll from the virus is one thing, and I think nobody is talking at all about the lockdown's death toll. And I have no idea what that is going to be, but studies have shown for many years that loneliness and social isolation decreases life expectancy by a significant oh. margin. So when you think of people who are lonely to begin with, and now you've taken whatever small avenues they have of socializing with other people, that really could have some serious negative effects. When you think about, you know, worst case scenario, and of course, God forbid, that would be devastating if, if you lost DMA. I'm personally very invested in that place existing because I think it's one of the best places in the entire DC area. And it's in the world. In the genuinely, world. <laughs> one of the reasons, I'll say this completely sincerely, one of the reasons that makes living here so awesome, like when I think of exploring like possibilities of moving for work or whatever, literally the thought of leaving DMA is one of the reasons like, oh, fuck, I would lose that as part of the calculus of why I would not want to move away. So there's that. But having that as a worst case scenario, from your perspective of sort of like the economic impact of this versus a single mother who's a waitress and lost her job and now is like depending on unemployment, that unemployment might not be enough for her to physically survive and keep from being homeless. And you would be surprised about how many people in this country don't have families who are taking care of them. You know, when you look at homeless people, the percentage that are veterans or people with mental health, we have a lack, a culture that is so about individual responsibility, which I'm a strong believer in individual responsibility, but it reaches such a point where we don't pay enough attention to vulnerable people. And I really don't think that that's a number that's ever going to be looked at. And it's kind of just something to really think about, about sort of like the extent of the devastation of this what it does to suicide rates, what it does to all kinds of stuff that nobody's talking about because right now we're all exclusively freaked out by the direct impact of the virus and its impact on hospitals and so on. So I want to respond to that, but before I do, I want to make a note because uh, you know me, like I'm pretty free market in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, but um, everybody who's free market would probably agree that the government needs to shut down these Chinese wet markets that are constantly creating new viruses mm -hmm. because they're not sanitary, right? Yeah. Like, So you know, I think government oversight I, I personally believe it should be limited, but it does it does have a place. Yeah. Um, just like government, you know, social programs, I think mm -hmm. they should be limited, but clearly they have a place. Look at us right now, right? So I think I read a study. I hate saying I read a study and then not be able to quote it mm -hmm. just as a personal, but I do it too much. But it was like most, uh, I think 60-something percent of Americans have less than $400 in their bank yeah, account. And almost all Americans, it was like in the 90s percent, 90 percent, mm -hmm. um, can't pay for their like expenses past one month, meaning yeah. they have one month of life savings, you know, yeah. behind them. And to your point, 
I, now, granted, I hadn't thought much about the loneliness and stuff mm-hmm. because, again, quick sidebar, when I was sick, I was by myself all the time. So yeah. I'm like... You're used to it. Yeah. Bro, I'm cooking, man. Yeah. I'm playing Xbox. I'm chilling. I'm, I, I, I am fine. You know, I yeah. just... I like... I want to work out harder. That's really it. Yeah. We've talked about this, about sort of how you're dealing with the shutdown so much better because like, oh, yeah. I've been through this you before. Me? I was... I couldn't even get out of my bed. I'm yeah. good. I was watching Friday Night Lights day in, day out. You know, yeah. I got like addicted to that TV show yeah. and emotionally invested. But... Um, but I didn't think about that, you know, but, but one thing I was thinking about was the economic impact, you know, I think for a couple weeks, maybe it was even a couple days at this point, who knows in the media cycle, it was, um, you know, let your grandmother die and open up the economy, you know, like it, it became this dramatic, like, oh, people are going to die just so you can go, you yeah. know, make a buck or whatever. And it's like, they're so closely connected mm-hmm. the the health and well-being of people versus their ability to make money, you know, cause the society is really driven on money right even if you think about like charity they're still giving you things that cost like this is how you you have a society this is how people live so to that single mother who's a waitress and she can't work and how she gonna you know i I mean we're in this really interesting time where revenue for everybody has just about stopped right dma for example there's the revenue is is over for the most part, I've had I've had a few people really come through in the clutch, yep. like yourself, who are continuing to support the small business. Actually, we had a, we had a great part of the community do that, but by no means are we operating at full capacity. Um, so effectively, you know, revenue is stopping, but the expenses are still going, and DMA is a microcosm of that. That's happening everywhere. Yep. My father's company, they they're a big company, man. This is a big business. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like a crazy big business, but this is a big business. They're they're limiting employees' hours, so they're effectively giving them like. 40% pay cuts, 20% pay cuts, making them work three days a week, knowing yeah. that they're still going to give you five days a week of work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, depending on who you are, you know, my father, he's in his 60s, he's 65, he's still working like the savage that he is. He's like, hey, buddy, I'm just glad I got a job. Yeah. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. Meanwhile, me, I'd be like, you pay me for three days, there's three days of work. Yeah. Don't hit me up on, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not giving you my best effort Monday through Wednesday, yeah. right? <laughs> But these things are so closely connected. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think, I'm actually a believe. I think we, the shelter in place is actually a really good thing. I've been calling for this for a while. Yeah. Just because that's how you stop the spread of anything. Yep. Um, but I can't imagine you just start letting companies and letting things fail. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Ironically enough, like, you know, I, I think I'd be cool paying a little bit more in taxes for, for Medicare, right? Yeah. Even though I get my company pays for it completely. But keep in mind, I pay a 15% self-employment tax. Mm-hmm. The, that tax is, is from DMA, and that's only because I found a way to make a couple bucks myself. Yeah. I have to pay 15%. That's more than what some Americans pay total. Yeah. So, so wait, that's different from like whatever income comes through DMA, or is that basically, you know, so it's like mm-hmm. you're generating income through your job. Obviously, a chunk mm-hmm. of your income goes to taxes. Yeah. And then 15% of what you make through DMA goes to taxes. No, no, 15% in addition on top of everything else. Oh, so DMA still pays state, federal, like your business, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm using DMA, but that's, it's not the best example. Let's just say, because uh, right now it's not bringing any revenue. Yeah. But let's say, uh, you know, like Charles and Omar Incorporated, we're a consulting firm, mm-hmm. firm, right? You and I are the owners. We have employees and everything like that, but we're an LLC. So we're paying state, we're paying local, we're paying federal. And on top of that, we're paying a 15% self-employment tax, right? So that's just... Uncle Sam being like, oh, dude, good for you. You figured it out. I'm going to take an extra 15%. Mm-hmm. Like... That, what the hell is good? But that's such bullshit. Yeah. Like objectively, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, by the way, if every single person was paying 5% more in taxes, I bet you we'd have Medicare for all, yeah. right? But instead I'm paying 15%, nobody's getting shit and you're just yeah. taking 15%. So yeah. if I made a hundred grand, you're taking $15,000 for what? Yep. 
just because I figured out how to make it myself. And and in the meantime, right, to me, here's what's frustrating, right? Like, there are so many acts of kindness where people are stepping up. You know, Phil's coffee is, like, paid employees an extra two weeks for everyone when they shut down, like, anyway, just, like, to help them basically get through the transition. You mentioned some people at DMA are, like, stepping up. The fact that all this is happening and the fact that there's pressure on people like you running a small business, mean in the meantime, you know, ever since the Reagan administration came aboard, they, you know, tax havens, they took the restrictions away from that. And so all these rich people are stashing their money tax-free in different places. And inequality in this country is skyrocketing at a point where, like you just mentioned, the overwhelming majority of Americans don't have $400 in their bank accounts. Meanwhile, you have literally the 0.1% have more money than the entire oh, bottom ridiculous. half of the country. There's something deeply broken about that. And sort of another frustration of mine in the middle of all this of we don't have money for this and how are we going to pay for that meanwhile the level of inequality has reached such a level and i feel like it's just the promise that any kind of government regulation or accountability for the wealthy is somehow killing the american dream and means that none of you can ever be rich again um, it's such an effective talking point to distract people from the fact that, that we're really getting screwed by the current system dude so screwed so screwed yeah. so I um I you know I reached out to Xfinity not my personal bill but my my gym bill and I was like hey you know do you are you guys offering any any uh, help throughout this time and they sent me a, a standardized message this is Comcast business mm-hmm. and they were like pretty much saying no we're not yeah. and I literally responded back I was like I think a billion dollar company can do a little bit more for small businesses don't yeah. you and then they were like they gave me a credit for the month yeah but what they're sending everybody is hey so sorry hang in there but sorry we can't help yeah. you right um. There's uh, you mentioned Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. He was the guy who was like, "Hey, trickle down economics." Yep, there, right? exactly. So, as an economic theory, trickle down economics is almost flawless, right? As a theory, mm-hmm. and, or really, I should say, if it was truly practiced that way, because the idea is that Omar, you start a business, you hire me and Grace, and then five years later, me and Grace break off, we start our own business, and rehire, you know, Omar Jr. and Emily. Right, and then so on and so forth, and you keep going, and this is how you build an economy. It's actually quite efficient, Mm -hmm. and people will be like, "Oh, you know, capitalism is good. It's a free market. You can do what you want." Of course, you need regulation, like everything, right? But the reality is that's not what we have. The what really is, it's like people refer to it as crony capitalism, Mm -hmm. which is a free market for the people who are so rich they don't need anything ever in life, Mm -hmm. and then I don't want to say nothing for everybody else, but the hoops that people have to go through to actually make it. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could tell you guys the the level of effort it took for us to start to just start work downstairs at DMA, mm-hmm. right? I say downstairs because it's in the same building as me. Um, whereas the landlord who works for a bigger company, uh, Ditmar, and, and they were fine. They got their permit, which was structural, meaning it was it involved the structural integrity of the entire building, yep. right? They had to get an architect to sign off on it, and it's instant. Two yep. weeks, yeah, two weeks. Us which was really effectively putting down wooden framing so that we could put mats down and putting up faux walls, meaning the walls don't even go to the ceiling because that's a whole different regulation set, yep. took us two and a half months before we could start. Yeah. So that's not a free market. That's not capitalism. Maybe for him, but not for me. Yep. And it, if anything, it should be the reverse, right? Yep. You have to level up the people who are, and, and, and I say that because it's like, very clear that we're doing our part. We're trying to, you know, we give back to the community. We take care of some people who need to be taken care of right now. Like we're doing our part, but to just to get to this point and it's like, we all have regular, we all have 
jobs now. We yeah. have to, we can't, none of us are retiring from our day jobs to still yeah. pay for DMA. It's, it's in a bizarre way, you know, like I think of it, it's funny because it occurs to me every time I go to the amusement park and there's a fast lane and if you pay an extra 50 bucks, you get to go on the fast lane. It's like, it's legalized bribery. That's really all it is saying, hey, if you want to sneak us a little bit of extra money, we'll let you skip the line and get around all these people. You know, like that's, that's basically what the system is. And like, when you consider honestly, the extent of government subsidies for like oil, you know, like um, the fossil fuel industry, you can even make the argument hilariously enough that it's really socialism for the rich. <laughs> you know, they get right. benefits from the government that other people don't get on account of sort of being the well connected. You that, know, oil, system. oil in itself, that's like such a complicated one. How about just mm -hmm. like, how about Comcast? Mm -hmm. They get government subsidies. Yep. The same people, right, who wouldn't give me a, uh, help me out on my bill before, unless I really yep. put it on them, they're getting they're getting bailouts from the government. Yep. So where's that money going? It's yeah. not going to me, right? So exactly. like trickle-down economics would be, hey, Omar, I'm going to give you a break, all right? So then you can give your employees a break and then they can give their people a break yep. and you, you know, it makes its way down. But what's happening is, you, I'm, hey, Omar, here's a break. Here's some cash. You know, thank you. Do the right thing. You're like, yeah, no problem. Yep. And that's it. Now it's in your bank account. Yep. And these companies are like doing stock buybacks and doing all kinds of stuff with the, with the money that the government is giving them. Like it's just, it's completely absurd. It's just... And, and it's funny too because the more I've learned, like I, th I see so often people are like, oh, this is the problem with capitalism. I'm like, mm -hmm. no, no, no. Capitalism would, capitalism would cause other issues. Mm -hmm. This is not capitalism. This is what people call capitalism, but it's yeah. so far from that because it's not equal. It's not open. It's not available to everybody. Yeah. It's available to the established. Yeah. You know, and that's where, like, I'm not really even, and, you know, crony capitalism, that's what yeah. they refer to it as, which is... So, right, it's funny, because ultimately, I think it just comes down a little bit to terminology, sort of like the ideological difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, is Elizabeth Warren does not refer to herself, doesn't use the word socialist at all. She's all about accountability for crony capitalism. That's what she's all about. And, like, there's a way to identify yourself as an enthusiastic capitalist and be against all these really shitty practices that are that are happening. And, like, that's where the government regulation part comes in, to ensure everybody is doing things correctly, right? Like you need somebody making sure that the wealthy are not exploiting others and hoarding the money. You need you need some measure to make sure that this is something that is helping all of us. And that's really what the function of a democratic government is supposed to be. And like that to me is where I struggle a little bit with sort of the kind of libertarianism that wants the government to step in to make sure you can call 911. Right, like if somebody breaks into your house, you feel like, oh, the government's role is to step in and regulate yeah. our the society situation. so violence doesn't take place. I'm like, well, economic violence is still a form of violence in some way, you know? I'm like, oh, that's no, no, no. the kind of thing where I think just it's so many of these things. I think the discussion, if you really explain the situation and boil it down to specifics, I don't think Americans would disagree as much as they seem to disagree right now. Everybody has a decent sense of fairness once you dig deep enough. The problem is a lot with slogans and those are slogans that are taught to us by the current entrenched interests as a way to distract us from the fact that they're screwing us over and getting us to vote against our own interests in, in many different ways. You know, uh, I, I, we had talked and I wasn't really a big fan of Warren. I didn't find her to be too likable and I oh, just, sorry, Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth Warren mm -hmm, during yeah. the presidential campaign. Yeah. Oddly enough, I became a pretty big fan of her after the fact mm -hmm. because when they were talking about, there was like the, the first stimulus package that they were putting out mm -hmm. and there was this big delay. Right. And yep. of course, like Nancy Pelosi's putting in all these like pet projects and shit. And you got the Republicans who are all of a sudden like they're getting even more rich and they're they're uh, doing insider trading and shit yep. like it's ridiculous. But she actually one of the things she was saying was she was like, oh, you're going to give these you're going to give all these people bailouts. 
but you're not going to hold them accountable for anything. Mm-hmm. It's much to your point. Yeah. And she was like, why do the airline industries and the cruise ship industry, I, I think there's an actual term for cruise ship mm-hmm. industry, but nevertheless, um, why is it that they are emitting all of this, the, the CO2s, they're, they're doing such damage to the environment, you know, statistically, and they hold none of the responsibility, yep. but you're going to make the consumer hold that responsibility, yep, exactly. which is exactly the point I've been, I, I think I've said to you, I like, I don't even think the people who believe in climate change really believe in it because yep. they just kind of give you a hard time about what you're doing, not about what's happening, you know? Yep. And I thought that was so important that she did that. And I'm like, good, yep. good. Hold their feet to the fire. Yep. You know what I mean? But, but it's just such a weird time because it's like, that's, you know, it's, oh, this is capitalism. Bro, this is so far from capitalism. Yeah. Like, I don't even know. I, you know, I don't like the term crony capitalism because, mm-hmm. again, it's, I think, I think socialism for the rich is better. Yeah. You know, because that might get the real people who think this is like, oh, yeah. I'm a capitalist. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what's going on here. Yeah. It's socialism for the rich and everybody else gets fucked. Yeah. You know, if you really had a true free market, and I don't mean like a crazy free market where shit gets wild, mm-hmm. but like if you had a free market, everybody, trickle down economics would work. Yeah. You know, so. I know we're getting a little bit off topic. I, I'm getting a little off topic, yeah. but it's just like this crazy time where, you know, the, the economic cost of, of this entire pandemic, mm-hmm. the health cost, and then the emotional cost that you pointed out too, I think they're all so closely connected, yeah. but they're not really being dealt with at all yeah. or, or, or together, right? They're being dealt with uh, individually, if at all. Yeah. Certainly if you're watching television, it's about, I mean, uh, or I, to be fair to the media, if that's a sentence <laughs> that I can put together, yeah. it is an election year, right? And so there's a lot of focus on like holding political accountability and sort of where that fits in. But I'm really, I'm, I'm not looking forward to this election cycle at all. Um, I was obviously excited when some of the candidates elect better were still in. I mean, technically Bernie Sanders is still in, but his chances don't look um, good anymore. It's not impossible for Joe Biden to implode. So Bernie Sanders might actually have another moment. Who knows? That's within the realm of possibility. But Right now, with the current trajectory being Biden versus Trump, it's such a turnoff that, uh, yeah. Just, it's going to be a tough one. It yeah. makes you wonder. Um, yeah. You know, I think 2016 would have been Biden's year, yeah. ironically enough. Because, you know, in, in his defense, I think he's, what, 78? Yeah. For what, not for nothing, he looks great for 78. Yeah. I he's, mean, just, he's clearly mentally deteriorated a lot in the big last time, few years. There's big no time. Question about That's it. what happens, yeah. man. You can't, you can't live under that type of stress for that long. You know, I, I mean, not for nothing. It's amazing that some of the people who are running for office. I mean, I think Trump is seventy-three, uh, something like that. In his, think let's say right, early yeah. to mid seventies. Yeah. For what it's worth, he looks great and he sounds great. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean great is not. He's not running a marathon, and you know, he's not going to win a bikini contest. Yeah, but, yeah. but he's, he's with it. He's, he's with like it. A, he's sharp. He's yeah. quick. You know, he's not. Maybe a lot of people might say he's not smart, but yeah. you're not getting one past. I disagree with that, way. by the way. I think he's very smart, but I really think that he suffers from psychological problems that make him absolutely obsessed with his own image, and that almost is his exclusive focus. And like to the at expense of everything else, that that's sort of the problem. But pretty yeah, pretty reasonable, actually. Yeah. Pretty yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you don't make that much money even from a million dollar loan. Yeah. You know, it's still you do, yeah. you're doing something right. But but the reason I bring that up is because you know, you look at, you look at Biden, it's one, it's kind of sad. Cause it's like, this is a person, a human being who's kind of just being thrown out to the wolves. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember that this was back when the race was still wide open and it actually looked like he was going to fall out. Mm-hmm. He was telling that story about corn pop and like, he almost got into a fight with those, the yeah. black guys. And then he was in the pool and he has hairy legs and you're just like, Bro, yeah. what are you like, yeah. what's going on here, man? Like this is, you know, and, and you have to wonder like for the Democrats, it's like everybody wants you to win. I think everybody is, is, was, was hoping you would put somebody up there who was like, Hey, we got you. We're, we're in this, yep. you know, and this is where we're at. Yeah. It's, I mean, when he goes on stage with Trump, 
he's it's going to be like it's going to be so rough i think for people to watch yeah i think that's that's going to bump trump up 20 percent they'll be anybody but this guy yeah you know so it's funny right because at the end of the day debates don't necessarily determine the winner right um i think the last election proved that i you know like it, it would be a stretch to say that trump beat hillary clinton like on the substance of any of the debates but if you perform extremely badly, if it's like such a landslide, then obviously it could absolutely be a factor. And from my perspective, I think that it's, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that Trump is going to win the debates. And it becomes the question of how bad is Joe Biden going to lose the debate to the point to where it actually affects the outcome or not. Because That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That's kind of what I meant. To, but yeah. continue, continue. Yeah, but it's, it's going to be really a referendum on how fed up the country is with Donald Trump is that I think that if you had any mainstream centrist Democrat run against Trump, my suspicion would be that that person would win. So I get where the instinct to get behind Biden comes from. Um, his politics are not mine. You know, he supported a range of policies that I find absolutely atrocious and abhorrent. Um, he lied about his support for the Iraq war. He lied about his past talking about wanting to cut social security. You know, just he's not my kind of guy at all. He might not have remembered in his yeah. defense, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Um, so it's, you know, but I, but I can see the calculus, despite the fact that he's not my kind of guy, I can see the calculus of somebody saying, just give people the sense that the Obama era is going to be restored and that's going to be enough to get people to vote for it. And I think that that calculus makes sense until you take into account how clearly deteriorated Joe Biden has been. I, I get the logic, right? Yeah. Like this is – I totally get that. From, but but to that point, I mean imagine some of these sound bites mm -hmm. that are going on. I mean all it's going to take is they're talking about pulling troops out of Afghanistan and Biden's talking about Vietnam. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're going to get – you know, Trump is going to be like, Joseph, we're not talking about the Vietnam War. Yeah. We're talking about Afghanistan. <laughs> yep. You know, like like it, it's – and that's going to go viral and people are just going to be like, oh, I mean, come on, yeah. bro. Like, you know, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out yeah. what's going on here. Yeah. Like. Again, the guy is just—he's he, 78, and he's not a sharp 78. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a 78 who should be relaxing yeah. in Florida, sleeping a ton. He probably would be better off if he just slept a bunch and played a little golf. Yeah. He'd probably be a normal dude, and you'd be like, "Oh, you're still smart. You're still with it." But you can't—you can't redline it for that long. Yeah. You know? No, I mean it's funny you say that because in Reagan's second term, he was already losing his mind. Right? The administration was effectively run by people around him and not by him anymore. So in an but whether if the voters were aware of it, obviously that would have been different, different time, right? Keep yeah. in mind, different time, right? Yep, no totally. social media and stuff like exactly. that, you know. Yep. The clips of you losing your mind are not going to go viral on Twitter back then. So yeah, that's totally yeah. But 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 to, and to like his credit, like when he when he there there is a steep drop off. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and I think some people face that more than others. Yep. Like um, I think Bernie's still sharp as ever, and he's seventy nine. Yeah, seventy eight. Around the same age, yeah. I, I mean, they're seventy seven and seventy eight. You know, yep. My grandfather was not like that. Yeah. You know, I it's there's the. Some people just hold it together better. Yeah. Um, my my mother's father, he passed, you know, but he was into his 80s and he was still quick as a whip. Yeah. But he's also not out on a campaign trail. He's sleeping. It's it's a low exertion life. Yeah. So his best, um, his energy is spent towards things just, he, he seems more normal. Yeah. Right? Like, like if you look at your energy as like a pizza pie, when you're young, it never runs out. When you're old, you just, you know, you lose a couple pieces. Now you only have five for the day. And then, you know, you get a little older. Now you only have three pieces of energy through the, for the day. Yeah. And then next thing you know, 
if you use that up because you're not sleeping, you know, get behind, you're not going to be yourself. Yeah. So it's, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but it's just like where we are and where we're going, I don't know how anything changes for the next four and a half years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just don't see it. Yeah. I don't see Biden beating him. You know, and I think that's kind of what Joe Rogan was saying. Yeah. He was like, hey, man, I'd vote for, for Trump over Biden. Yeah. And, you know, I think my so, my vote's still up in the air, but yep. it probably won't be for Biden. I don't yeah. think it could. I mean, what if I voted this guy in and then he's he has like a stroke on the first day in? Yeah. So this is, I think, is going to be a, a fundamental. That's a big disagreement that I have with both you and Joe Rogan on that front in the sense of I agree that Joe Biden, I don't like him. And I agree that having somebody who spaces out constantly and loses his train of thought and doesn't know what he's talking about is pretty crappy. <laughs> Still, despite that, I think the kind of damage that Trump is making versus the kind of damage that a spacey Joe Biden would make when he's in office and the people around him are running things is going to be a lot less. And coming strictly from the principle of reducing harm and, you know, it's to me, like if it's a personality contest between the two, obviously Trump is much more sharp and with it. And if that's what I'm voting on exclusively, you might make an argument for Trump. But for me, it's more about consequences of their actions while they're in office. And I have no doubt that the kind of harm that Joe Biden would cause while in office is going to be drastically less than the kind of harm that Trump is causing in office and would cause when he's empowered to do this for four more years. And because of that, I think it's really important to like, it's funny, you know, like it's again, I'm think I'm genuinely thinking about making a video in which I say, I don't like Joe Biden, but I think it's important that people vote for him just to stop something worse from happening, despite the fact that he's neither fit <laughs> nor consistent nor moral enough. He's not he's not the kind of guy he's not the kind of guy we need as a leader. But it's strictly in this case about reducing the harm of the person the other person continuing. It's about alternatives that exist. Well, I don't wanna I do, I don't dislike Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. So it's not like oh I can't stand him. Yeah. I didn't mean it like that. Yeah, yeah. Um but, you know, it was funny. I remember when, when people were, were voting in for Trump, they said, well, if he surrounds himself with enough smart people, mm -hmm. it'll just be fine. Yep. But he's not the personality type, right? Like, for me, I can see Joe Biden surrounding himself by people who are leading him down a certain path, and he's good with it. You could tell when he's, like, doing interviews and debates, he's looking up at his notes. You know, it's all the shit that his aides wrote that he can't remember, and so he has to look at them and see if he can string sentences together. I would have completely agreed with the idea, and that was a possibility, by the way, early on. There was one moment in which Trump looked genuinely nervous and bewildered, and it was the first time he sat across from Obama right after he won the election. He was still president-elect. Oh, yeah, I know Trump. And he just sat down next to Obama, and you could see the look on his face of, holy shit, I'm president. This is huge, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm a little terrified. Dude, imagine that feeling. Yep. And if that person could have been the president we had. I think we would be so much better off. But slowly he regained his confidence and he's like, screw everyone, I know what I'm doing. And he just like, it obviously became clear that he's the one who's driving the policy and being, you know, once once he lost his cold feet about the job, he became fully empowered and I think disempowered anybody around him, surrounded himself by yes men, fired the shit out of people. I mean, still during this crisis, he's fired a bunch of people as well. Clearly, He's not the kind of guy that you can surround by smart people who can drive him to good policy. He's clearly in the driver's seat, and that's what makes it very dangerous to have somebody that ignorant who insists on holding onto the steering wheel in a way that I imagine that Joe Biden would let the people around him actually drive the car. You know, and that's that is a good point. I just I, I don't think in good faith I could even subject somebody to 
like I couldn't I don't I wouldn't feel I'd feel almost bad putting Joe Biden in that position. Mm-hmm. But I also think like again, not to bring the media into this, but like, you know, when he got into it with that auto worker and the auto worker yeah. had his phone had the phone in his face and was like, Why are you trying effectively was like, Why are you trying to take away my guns? He yeah. wasn't really that bad though. Yeah. He, you know, he didn't it, like I'm kind of not giving the auto worker enough credit. Um but that was effectively the conversation. Yeah. And they had a disagreement. There was this one moment where he, you know, he looks at his aide and he goes, You shush right yeah. to this young female aide. Yeah. If if Trump had done that, it would have been blasted day in, day out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, I think there was like they they're, they're handling him with white gloves, and it's costing the Democratic mm-hmm. Party because yeah. instead of being like, okay, this isn't going to work out, this guy's this guy's this just isn't going to work out. Yeah. I feel like it's gonna they're going to keep it protected until they can't protect him anymore, yeah. and that's when the exposure yeah. will happen. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, and I think that that could be the reason why Trump wins the election. I think that's very very actually it's perfectly plausible, if not likely, scenario in which. And it's funny because, in a weird way, it's all about Bernie Sanders. If Bernie Sanders was not the one leading in the polls before everybody dropped and endorsed Biden, the Democratic Party would have not necessarily felt the pressure to say, we have anything but Bernie, which is effectively what they did, right? When, um, what's his name, Buttigieg was doing very well in the polls, he was still, like, had a genuine shot. And when he was pushed by the Democratic Party and the donors to just drop out and endorse Biden, you knew that that was a move strictly to undermine Bernie Sanders and about nothing else. Right. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to think that the Democratic Party, because they could not think of any other individual that they could collapse the entire field behind in order to defeat Sanders, decided to go with just, this is what we're going to do. And now you have somebody who's clearly not up for the job as the person that they're all falling behind. And I think that's part of the white gloves is people see Trump exclusively as the threat and in opposition to that threat, they're willing to do anything to produce an alternative. And in the process of being that desperate, they became stupid enough to put against him potentially the worst opponent possible and somebody who has probably the least chance. Yeah. Um, you know, crazy, crazy times indeed. I, I want to shift gears a little bit because we, we've hit a lot of different mm-hmm. topics. But so we got a UFC this uh, the 18th. Mm-hmm. So one, I want your opinion on the event itself. So um, last week I was uh, I was able to like uh, teach one of Nancy Kidder's classes. Mm-hmm. I was like the guest, and then today I got to sit in. She had Luke Thomas on. Bro, Friday, I know, I'm just talking to you, but yeah. Friday, she's got Ariel Hawani coming in. Oh, so that's I'm gonna, great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So if you want, by the way, you're more than welcome to sit in. I don't know what your day's like, but I can give you the link, and she said you're more than welcome to join in. Oh, that'd be awesome. You ask good questions, so yeah. you'd, you'd fit right in. Sure. Um, but anyway, you know, obviously Luke Thomas is, uh, he takes the pandemic very, very seriously, mm-hmm. and he thinks this is a big, big mistake. So I'm kind of on the fence. Yep. Because from, you know, I worked for Combate Americas. So I was a consultant mm-hmm. for them. And putting on events, I could tell you that I am, I could not be more impressed with Dana White to get this done. Yep. I don't think people understand how difficult this is with, with everything going on right now for him mm-hmm. to still be able to make this happen. It's, it's truly mind blowing. Yep. I mean, it's an impossible, it's, I, it would be an impossible thing to ask somebody to do like, Hey, put on fights during a pandemic because yep. even with, unlike other sports, there's a completely separate athletic commission there's a lot more individual parties, mm-hmm. right? You don't have teams. You have individual camps. Like the, the the moving pieces that go into an event like this to make this happen is it's shocking. Yep. I, I mean, I'm I'm literally I'm my jaw has dropped the fact this is a possibility. Yep. Um, 
Bro, admittedly, my first instinct when I saw that this card, and I don't know, have you seen the card? I have not. What, oh, dude, it's stacked. It's stacked. So it's going to be Justin Gaethje and Tony first. Okay, it is. All right. But then Francis Ngannou is going to fight uh, Jairno Rosenstruck. Mm -hmm. We watched him knock out Overeem with that yeah. big overhand, right? Yep. Um, the, the car, the Vicente Luque is on it. Um, who else? Greg Hardy is on it. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we get to root against him. He's yeah. fighting this guy, yeah. Jorgen DeCastro. <laughs> dude, yeah. the card is stacked. Yeah. My first thought was... Who are the nine people I'm going to watch it with? Yeah. Right? But admittedly, my second thought was, what are they actually doing here? So, like, do they have 70 to 150 tests? And when I say that many, I figure, you know, the fighters, their camps, the cornermen. Yeah. Right? The athletic commission, the refs, the production crew, the event crew. You figure it's going to be around 100 people. Yeah. Not all very close together very spread out and everything like that, but the people who come in and put the cage together, the people who are the yep. concierge at the hotel, like the minimum would be like 100 people, right? Yep. Do you have that many corona tests? Yep. What do you do if somebody gets sick? What do you, do you have a hospital on standby? You know, have you heard that, have you heard some of Dana White's plan? I've, I've heard that they're doing it on an island. All right, so I'm going to give you the lay of the land and yep. then I'm going to let you take the mic because I really yep. want to hear your input on mm -hmm. this. I, I honestly... Dude, if I could sit down and pick this guy's brain, like imagine being his intern. It's amazing that he came up with this. So they have an event on the West Coast. They're saying it might be Ta Taichi Palace mm -hmm. in California, which is a uh, reservation, yep. uh, but a very nice like hotel and casino, but it's just ran by an Indian reservation. Yep. Um, or it's an undisclosed location. So they don't really know yet, but they do know it's going to be on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. I was thinking it would be in like Phoenix, Arizona or something like that, yep. or maybe even Scottsdale, Arizona, but I'm not sure. The other option for the international fighters, because they can't get into the U.S., is that he's renting out an island, mm -hmm. a private island, where they're going to hold events there for all the international fighters. Yep. Now, that's the one where I'm like, do you have a hospital there? Like, yeah. there's a lot of things like, is it a private island that's connected to the Keys or Costa Rica? Like, there's a lot of things that I have questions for. Like, do you have, like, what if the worst case happens? What if you have a corona outbreak on the plane of UFC fighters? You know, is everybody yeah. taking fighter, uh, private jets, fighter jets? Is everybody, yeah. you know? Anyway, so that those are the two plans. One's going to be the West Coast, where it most likely will be on a tri tribal lands, mm -hmm. and the other is going to be on a private casino or a private island where they'll probably have some sort of casino in their own in-state athletic commission. But yep. you know, um, but please give me your thoughts because this is crazy. I mean, I, I imagine that first, I have no doubt that Dana White is an extremely intelligent human being. Again, like Trump, you don't make it that far unless you got something going for you, um, and. I believe that it's, I mean, I wish I could trust that that would be a concern, but I believe that Dana White, who's personally worth half a billion dollars himself, let alone the UFC as a company and all the resources that they have, that they would be capable of holding a perfectly safe event if they invested all of their resources in making sure that's the case. So it's twofold. One would be a question of trust whether this is just about them finding a location where they can get around the regulations for the sake of throwing the event together and saying, screw the consequences, in which case that would be really shitty, and I don't know whether that is the case or not, um, versus really taking all these precautions and making sure that everybody is tested and making sure that there's medical staff on hand. But the second level of this is that even if you could hold a perfectly safe event for the people involved in putting the event together itself, the second layer is what are you encouraging in this moment in terms of literally you said the first thought you had is who are the nine people going to watch this with? And like, is it responsible to put events that encourage people to get together at a moment like this when you're supposed to be investing energy and in making sure that people can maintain social distancing? Um, 
theor I this is one of those cases where I would resort to personal responsibility of saying, you know, you should look after yourself. If you want to watch it, watch it. Don't watch it with a large group of people, blah, blah, all that stuff. Um, but it, it, it's more about PR than the technicality. This is what this is about. There is, I think, an effort of saying in the middle of all this, we're canceling all these events because we want to encourage social distancing. And you're saying, screw that idea, everybody for themselves. I'm, we're going to do this and you guys all figure it out. Um, so it's subjective. I don't think it's clear cut. Like I don't think Dana White is evil for maintaining, you know, for like pushing forward this event. I don't think the UFC would have um, any direct responsibility for any people who get sick as a result of getting together to watch this fight, right? Like this is the kind of thing where it's just it's yeah, it's extremely subjective, and it's exclusively about whether you think this is a time to be halting everything to encouraging a particular course of action versus not. I can see on the other side of this, people are bored out of their minds. And I can speak for myself that this isolation has been very, very difficult. And if somebody's willing to put to, you know, together some live action that a lot of people want to watch, then you are giving the people something they want in a way, right? Like the fact that the uh, Disney's is offering, you know, like a, an expanded array of movies that are, you know, freshly out and all that. So I think giving people content is also good. So I don't think it's clear cut, good or bad. I can see how people can make the argument in either way. But I'm definitely going to tune in. I'm definitely going to watch it. I'm looking forward to it. And um, yeah, so sadly, I don't have any strict. No, right. It's, it's not really black and white. No, I yeah. think I me and you are on the same page on yeah. this. Like most things are. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, a part of me is just like, hey, like, fuck yeah. I'm really disappointed it's not Khabib. Yeah, um, absolutely. But. You Before, saw there was a fake Ariel Helwani account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Dana, Dana responded to it. Yeah. Daniel Cormier responded to it. Yeah. Like a lot of, I mean, honestly, it had me for a split yeah. second. Um, but before I ask your your input on the fight itself, mm -hmm. so this is how much effort they were going to to keep this fight going. Mm -hmm. Dana White was, once they found out that the, the event couldn't be in Brooklyn and that it wouldn't also not be in Las Vegas because Las Vegas um, suspended temporarily suspended all uh, Nevada athletic licenses they were looking at ulterior opportunity or, or ulterior locations and one of the ones they found was at the uae right yeah. so they called the, i guess they called up the uae whatever that representative was and they were like yes do it bring them right so dana white says okay khabib you're in vegas right now pack your things go to the uae that's where we're going to send the event so they started they get all these logistics going like this logistical uh steam engine just starts turning, right? The gears are turning. Khabib is in the air on his way to the UAE and he lands there, right? And when he lands there, in the time it took for him to get on the plane to landing there, the UAE said, sorry, we're not allowing anybody, any non-citizen into the country. They closed their borders. Mm, yep. So he couldn't go back to the US because he didn't have a visa. He yep. used it to leave the country. Gets and, diverted to Russia. <laughs> and he went he ended up going back to Dagestan. Yeah. And that was where he was. And that's kind of where he did this like Instagram live and stuff like yeah. that. So you have to wonder, had he not gone to the UAE and he, he stayed in America, could that fight have still gone on? Yep. You know? And in that case, do you believe in curses given the fact that this is the billionth time this event is cancelled? Dude, the fifth time, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. like you know, back then, I remember, like, that fight would have been so much less. Yeah. But, you know, part of the buildup has been the fact that, obviously, that the cancellations make you want to see it more. Yeah. But also the fact that both these guys have gotten so, so good. Mm -hmm. They're so much better now than they were two fights ago, five fights ago, seven fights ago, right? Yeah. Like, th there's a lot I would love to see with those two. Um, but I'll tell you what, man. Justin Gaethje versus Tony Ferguson. Hell of a fight still. Yeah. 
Hell yeah. Yep. So who do you think is going to win that? Um, my suspicion is Tony Ferguson. And really? Okay. I, honestly, this could come from lack of information on my part, is that I really don't feel that I'm as familiar with Justin Gaethje. I've watched a couple of his fights, but not enough, and I feel like I'm a little bit deeper on Tony Ferguson and really impressed with him. Yeah, um, that's fair. But uh, you, you're definitely I'm more interested in what you have to say because I think your analysis would be much more insightful. <laughs> so, yeah. no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, so Ferguson, his style is like high volume, incredible pressure, and really funky stuff, right? And the same reason why I think that Gaethje would have good success against Khabib being that he doesn't back down He's not afraid to sit in the pocket, and his strongest punches are hooks, and not like overhands really, but they're tight hooks that he throws. He kind of rolls his shoulders so they become overhands, but in the pocket hooks. Um, Whereas for like a guy like Connor, he likes long punches, right? Meaning like he stays on the outside, and as you close, he he lands shots on there, right? So Gaethje for the and and that's also by the way, quick sidebar, why he struggled with Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier because they weren't afraid to sit in the pocket with him. And Eddie Alvarez mixed it up with knees, things like that. Poirier has, I think, the best in the pocket boxing when it comes to his blocking and his ability to counter. That it was just bad matchups for Gaethje. Since then, Gaethje's really improved, changed his game plan, utilizes more leg kicks. So his whole game has evolved now, and he just the way he stays on people without overcommitting is preventing him from getting hit with those counter shots. So when I look at Ferguson and I see the way he's gotten hit and I see the way he's had some struggles, I mean, like Cowboy, I thought if he was fresh, would have given him a much better fight. Because there was moments there when I saw Cowboy was getting the reads on him and was landing the shots and getting out of the way of the counters. Um, Obviously, in the second round, that really went the other way. But then when I saw the Pettis fight, I thought the same thing. Okay, if you're quick and athletic and you can get a shot in on, on Tony, he's very hittable. Tony does the best against guys like Rafael Dos Anjos, who usually break people. But he breaks the people who break other people, right? He puts the pressure on you, he backs you up, he hits you with volume, and he's relentless. But he also will struggle on guys who have those quick athletic shots that will hit him on the way in. Michael Johnson, for example. Yeah, and Barbosa gave him a hard time in the first Barbosa, round. Barbosa, there was a, a lot of things Barbosa did right. And the way that I don't think Tony Ferguson has ever been like fed cans. I don't believe that. And I'm not saying that at all, but he's also never fought a guy much like Khabib. He's never fought a guy who I think is a good representation of a fighter who can beat him. Right. He's always fought guys who I felt he had the advantage on. I think Khabib's toughest fight in a lot of ways was actually Kamal. Um, but in the full fight itself, I would say Glayson Tebow, who was a guy who was very well versed with takedowns, who was comfortable striking and who you couldn't just spam takedowns to take down. Right, that that was tough, but you know what I'm trying to say. Um, and then obviously Khabib is vastly improved, and he's he's fought guys who would beat up Glayson Tebow, but at the time that was a very difficult fight for him. Tony Ferguson, I think, has the the fight with Dos Anjos to me, where I was like, whoa, this guy is is really he's just not operating on a different level. But he's had moments where he's almost lost. I mean, with Kevin Lee, he got cracked, he got mounted, and he wore him down, and he was able to get the finish. But there was times there where it was danger. Uh, Anthony Pettis dropped him, rocked him, and almost finished him, right? So these are times where I'm like, these are guys who not I wouldn't normally give that high-level finishing credit to. They they could obviously finish fights, but they're not going to do so at that level of competition that found success against Tony Ferguson. And I really don't doubt that Justin Gaethje, when, he, when they go into their exchanges, when they're, go, when they're entering into grappling exchanges and Gaethje gets up or lands on top and stands up and then puts it on Tony Ferguson... 
I think this might be the first time we see Tony Ferguson back up. Because I just can't see you walking down a guy who hits that hard and throws that many punches and bunches. And when you walk in, it's hard leg kick, uppercut hook. And you just that's a lot to happen in the pocket. It's just too much. So I, I actually think Gaethje's going to win. But the, the creativity of Tony Ferguson, I think this is his real test. Because with, with Khabib, it would be like, all right, well, he's probably just going to roll through and he's going to do some funky jiu-jitsu and standing up stuff. Like, he's just going to be a little awkward. And I think, I think Khabib would control him because Khabib is so technically strong in positions. But with Gaethje, I actually think this is a really good opportunity for Ferguson to show some more um, unorthodox striking and unorthodox grappling because he can't hang out in the pocket with Gaethje. Right, he can't really take the time to do the spinning elbow and sit there like he could with with uh, Cowboy, who's Cowboy's a very in and out fighter, right? Punch, punch, punch. As you're backing up, he walks you down, either goes in the clinch or backs up, but not a clinch guy, and that's why he Cowboy struggled so much with Gaethje, right? So I'm giving you like all these like connected circles of he struggled uh, him yeah, for this it reason, makes right? Sense. Yeah, no, but but it makes this perfect storm of you've had all these guys. Gaethje struggles, Tony Ferguson struggles, and then also their successes and the reason why they were successful coming together to put on a fight where it's like, holy shit, like this could literally be anybody's fight. Like I could see Gaethje rocking Ferguson and staying on him and putting him down in the first round. Conversely, I could see him rocking Ferguson and then Ferguson just recovers and starts cutting him up and then Gaethje starts bleeding and then Gaethje slows down a little bit and once he slows down, Ferguson just comes up and then next thing you know, he's running away with it and he's just beating down Justin Gaethje. And Justin Gaethje starts shooting takedowns and he gets darsed and like all these things can happen, you know? So I do think Gaethje's going to win. I think between the leg kicks and the hooks, I think it's going to really slow. I think the leg kicks will slow down for uh, Ferguson. And I think his power punches is going to make Ferguson really hesitant to engage too much, especially after he, he gets that first hook, uppercut hook. One of those crazy combos where he's like, I've never fought a guy who hits that hard and throws those types of combinations. Um, but I mean, we're going to be talking about it when we're watching it. So there's a lot of things I think go into it. That is my pick. But honestly, man, this whole card is stacked. I'll send it to you after this. I mean, we don't have to go through each fight, but it's going to be awesome. Decision versus knockout. Do you think he would finish him more? If Ferguson wins, he's going to win by decision. Maybe a late stoppage, like a late TKO. If Gaethje wins, it's going to be an early knockout, I think. Like early. And it's going to be one of those ones where you're just like, oh, my God, like, like that. So I can't wait, man. I can't wait. So then, if that happens, it makes a Gaethje Connor confrontation inevitable for who gets to take on Habib next. Well, so I like that, right? So it's interesting you said that because I think a couple of different things can happen because of Ramadan. I actually think that's a real possibility. You could have Gaethje, um, you know, it, oh, I should clarify this fight is for the interim title belt. So Gaethje Ferguson's for an interim belt, which I think is the right thing, not because of Khabib and his situation. Khabib's been active. He's fine. More so because this fight for Ferguson, it deserves to be a title shot. You know, and I think it's kind of doing the challenger a solid. Um, but I think it with because of Ramadan, you could get Connor and and fighting the winner. If Gaethje wins, I think that's a lot more plausible because then Gaethje could get the uh, excuse me, Connor could win the interim belt, and then you could unify the belts in a rematch. Or the, the, the fight goes the way it goes. Ramadan is, is irrelevant because by July, the, the economy still isn't opened up again. Then I think you could actually see Khabib fight Gaethje to unify it. And I think Connor's going to have to fight somebody else. Because Connor is not, I mean, maybe late notice, but he's not going to fight Khabib next. The only way that happens is if something else doesn't happen, if that makes sense. It's not going to happen organically. He's got to earn it. 
And I thought that's why I love the Gaethje fight because from a striking point of view, Connor Gaethje would be amazing. Amazing, right? A guy who likes to brawl versus a super technical dude. But from a... Um, just like a matchup standpoint, like a matchmaking standpoint, I should say, I don't know how Connor gets to Khabib now because who would you say he should fight? Yeah, it's hard to think unless he wants to do it at 170, then there are names that come up. But Well, there's, yeah, right. So he could fight, his move would probably be fighting a 55er at 170, right? So maybe you fight Poirier at 170, um, which dangerous fight. Maybe you fight Nate Diaz for the third time. Okay, but I don't. Does I, that I really would be get bored you there? to death. Honestly, I would not be excited about seeing that fight at all. But right. you know, it would be an amazing fight to happen. Like I don't think you'd be bored watching that fight, but the build-up wouldn't be the same, right? Like this is why for Connor, it's like, hey, you know, you're staying active. Like, what's how are we gonna shake this out? Like, because this was the this was the path, right? Cowboy, a tough fight, but a very good matchup. Um, Gaethje. Somebody everybody fears, but I think a very, very good matchup. And then you get back to Khabib, and it's like, okay, what did you learn in those two fights since? But I don't know, man. I mean, that's probably what I would do if I was the UFC. But I think if Ferguson wins, you don't have Connor fight Ferguson for the interim belt. Um, I think you got to go right for Khabib because that's the fight that's like been meaning to happen. So you wouldn't take, you wouldn't risk not having that fight a second time, you know, or I should say a seventh time. But you know what I mean? Like, like this was the first, supposed to be. Khabib and Ferguson. So if it doesn't happen this time, you wouldn't add another fight to another hurdle in front of that. You would try to actually make that happen. But I, I think Ferguson Connor would be a great fight. And I think I think that's a fight that Connor could win actually. I don't think he'll ever beat Khabib. I don't see how he does it just because there's the Khabib's strength and Connor's I don't want to call it a weakness because it's not a weakness, but Connor's uh vulnerability against Khabib, I just think that gap is too big. But with Ferguson and the way he comes in and his ability to get hit and his lack, he doesn't, you know, Ferguson doesn't control the range traditionally, right? He controls the range by pressuring you, which that's kind of how I like, I like to emulate things. Like you put pressure and that's how you get people to back up and now you're the one coming forward, right? But Connor, he's in and out. So sometimes you'll come forward, he's back. Then when you go, you know, he's always controlling where the action occurs. And I, w- I would say that would be what would be trouble for Ferguson. You know what I mean? And Gaethje. So, I mean, I feel like it would be, because I remember in the second Connor Diaz fight when he dropped Diaz a couple of times they had the audio playing from his corner and they're screaming at him to pull back and not to follow him to the ground and I feel it would be similar if it ends up being Connor versus um, Ferguson as long as you keep it on the feet I think he has no chance against you as long as you don't follow him to the ground and, and get caught with something so right like when he's throwing his crazy shit can you back up you know the best the best comment, uh, counter for a spinning back fist isn't a takedown it's a step right hand you know, because as they're turning into it, you're coming over the top. I should say, not a right hand, a cross, you know. Um, and I think that's just the type of fight that we would see. So, Connor does have options. I just think after this fight, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday, we'll really see how it's going to work out in regards to the timing of it all. But, um, but listen, man, I think this has been like an hour and a half. Sounds about right. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, no. Is there anything you want to you want to leave the fans uh, with or anything nothing. like that? This is great. I'm glad we had this conversation, and it's nice to get to see you in person again. So I know, yeah, I know. Well, good. let's let's maybe we keep this like a corona a corona podcast going because there's so much happening constantly. Like, I mean, you know, we talked a lot about politics, but I mean, in the hour and a half that we spoke, probably a lot more shit has happened. Yeah, that's you know what I mean. True. And, and even if it doesn't go into politics, we could just get into everything else that's like branching off because of it. You know, because I think you brought up something we didn't really get too into it, but the the individual level struggle for what's going on here. Um, I think that doesn't you you said it doesn't get a lot of light, and I feel bad because we didn't talk about it that much. But 
that's something I think I want to hear more about. So, brother, thank you as always for coming on. And um, guys, no sponsors today. Just uh, be on the lookout for District Martial Arts. We're going to have an online academy coming at you soon. We filmed some videos. Actually, Omar filmed some videos. So uh, we'll be coming at you with that. And then we're also going to have some virtual classes coming in week by week, uh, Tuesday by Thursday by Saturday. So be on the lookout for that, guys. I appreciate your support. I apologize for not getting back to you last week. Like I said, I don't have an excuse, but I hope you enjoyed this one. All right. Take it easy, guys. I'll see you next Wednesday for the next episode of Love and the Fighter.